today on Against the Grain. When workers want to form a union, what organizing methods do they use, should they use? Do those methods differ for people working in the gig economy? I'm CS. Paul Christopher Gray presents an instructive case study of food couriers in Toronto coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Labor agitation, unionizing efforts, organizing campaigns. We hear about such things. We sometimes read about what workers demand and how employers respond. But we don't hear much about the specifics, the specific methods and tactics used by labor organizers to reach out to co-workers, to mobilize them, to help them understand what's required and what's at stake. Concrete Specifics is our focus today. A fascinating case study is the vehicle for gaining insights into the nitty-gritty details of labor organizing. Paul Gray is Assistant Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Canada. He wrote a journal article about an effort by food couriers in Toronto to unionize, an effort that utilized methods like structured organizing conversations, social mapping, social charting, and the identification of leaders and of strategic choke points. The journal Paul's article appeared in is Labor slash Le Travail. When Paul Gray and I connected recently, he began with these remarks about the gig economy and gig work. Well, in the traditional idea of a gig, you have usually a one-time or short-term transaction between someone providing a service and someone paying for it. It's often a supplement to somebody's main uh, source of income, but not always. And prior to 2010, I think the gig was romantically associated with the relationship between uh, a musician and a venue that they uh, had a gig at. Since 2010, uh, however, with the rise of various platform companies like uh, Uber, I think our idea of what a gig is has changed substantially, and it's related more to this idea of uh, the gig economy, and it's related to uh, what we mean by platforms or applications, apps. These are internet-connected software that mediate between different users, often in a transactional uh, relationship. And I think there are three basic kinds of these transactional relationships. The first is uh, selling of non-labor commodities, uh, something you might do on eBay or Kijiji. Uh, Then there's uh, renting of non-labor commodities, something you might do on Airbnb. And then there is selling uh, labor as a commodity, something that you might do uh, on Uber, DoorDash, uh, Amazon, Mechanical Turk, and the like. And I think that uh, this last group, selling labor power as a commodity through these platforms, is gig work proper. That's my basic understanding of gig work and how it relates to the, the gig economy in general. In this piece, you're writing about couriers who were working for the Foodora platform in the city of Toronto. Uh, tell us a little bit about Foodora and what these couriers did. Well, Fedora is a subsidiary of a Berlin-based company, Delivery Hero, and essentially uh, customers would uh, download this app and they would order food from restaurants, and then you would have couriers uh, either riding bikes, uh, e-bikes, or driving cars, picking up the food and then delivering it to wherever uh, these customers were. And these couriers, they would, via this app, furnished by, developed by Foodora, they would know who to deliver to and what to order and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, this is one of the unique things about the gig economy insofar as it's related to these platforms or apps. 
these platforms are the place where users are recruited, including uh, customers and people who are going to provide their services. It's where they're connected, so you'll have uh, these, these workers being connected with uh, the customers. Uh, it's how that work can be coordinated often. You'll get maps through the app uh, that indicate to, uh, in this case, the courier where they're going to deliver the food. It's where the courier gets paid. Uh, the platform can also engage in various forms of surveillance of gig workers as they're conducting uh, their labor. And uh, it's also the place where uh, these couriers can be disciplined if they're uh, not uh, following the rules as interpreted by these app companies. Uh, and disciplines can include uh, being deactivated temporarily or permanently, uh, which basically locks uh, these people out of uh, the app. And it's the equivalent of uh, in, in the case of a permanent deactivation, it's the equivalent of being fired from a job. And so these couriers typically never had in-person contact with their superiors at Fudora? So Fudora did have a central site where you had uh, the uh, executives uh, of the, the company, uh, the administrators, and you had the dispatchers who... Uh, were working together with the couriers when they were delivering these goods. And so uh, Fedoria couriers could go to this uh, central site and uh, interact with uh, dispatchers and, and, and supervisors and the like. Uh, and to that extent, uh, I think it has a bit more of a, uh, a personal uh, relationship with couriers than is often the case in other apps like uh, Uber Eats and the like uh, tend to be more dependent on algorithms, tends to be more uh, impersonal. But uh, in general, these couriers would rarely see uh, in person any of their, their supervisors, managers, or the like. And their workplace was the size of a metropolis. There was no central brick or mortar worksite for them to go to. You indicate that these couriers, again, working for the Foodora platform, faced many of the challenges common among gig workers. What sorts of challenges do you mean? Gig workers often face issues of low compensation. Uh, the pay can be quite low and actually uh, providing uh, their work through platforms can be quite expensive when you think about how they have to provide much of their own equipment. Uh, you can think about the maintenance costs of owning a car and using it for deliveries, for example, uh, or using it to transport people, having to pay for gas and the like. So this is uh, uh, one issue that that gig workers face. Uh, another uh, one that is quite relevant to uh, couriers is health and safety issues. Uh, this can be incredibly dangerous work. Uh, people have been injured uh, and in the rare circumstances have died uh, doing this kind of work. And uh, often, because of the way in which the gig economy is structured, uh, the health and safety concerns are exacerbated because uh, these employers are not liable for accidents that occur in the workplace. And that's connected with one of the other uh, major barriers that gig workers tend to face. And that is that whenever someone uh, employs another to uh, provide work of uh, one kind or another, uh, they have to uh, submit a kind of legal classification of uh, what kind of work is being provided. And uh, the two major categories are employee and independent contractor. The idea of an employee is someone who is dependent on the person uh, to whom they're providing their labor uh, for the, the workplace. Uh, there's a, a, a deep and integral connection between uh, the work that that person is providing to this particular employer and uh, the way in which this employer is gaining profits from uh, the labor that's being provided. Whereas an independent contractor is associated with someone who has uh, much more uh, flexibility, much more autonomy, they own much more of their equipment, uh, much more choice in uh, with whom they can engage in these kinds of transactions. And uh, what has happened is a lot of these gig companies, uh, basically all of them uh, typically, will classify gig workers not as employees, but as independent contractors. 
And independent contractors often do not have the same kinds of labor rights and protections that people who are classified as employees have. So, for example, independent contractors don't have certain minimum labor standards like a minimum wage, and they don't have certain minimum uh, rights associated with being an employee, like, for example, the right to form a union, to engage in collective bargaining, uh, and to strike. You also write that the work done by these couriers was unpredictable and had high turnover. So this is a, this is a fairly common aspect of, of the gig economy. Yes, I think that gig work is a form of work that is similar to a much broader category of work, and that is casual labor or contingent labor, where it occurs on a kind of one-off or short-term basis, uh, where you uh, might be uh, working part-time for uh, multiple different uh, employers. It's uh, uh, unpredictable in terms of you know when you're going to be scheduled, uh, when you can expect to be able uh, to work. It uh, demands much more flexibility of you uh, and your time uh, uh, while you're working. And I think that the gig economy is part of a broader trend, uh, the kind of neoliberal uh, transformation of work that's been occurring since the 1970s towards these much more uh, casual, precarious uh, forms of work. In May 2018, eight Fudora couriers met in a park. What did they discuss and what was the outcome of this meeting? Well, on that night in Christie Pitts Park in Toronto, these eight couriers, who did not have much experience with labor organizing, discussed how the work for Fedora was transforming and declining over time. Uh, the way in which uh, their you know, wages, what they're making for uh, delivering uh, this food, uh, you know, it was declining. The structure of the scheduling was becoming uh, more rigid so even though one of the attractive features of this work was the flexibility it was supposed to guarantee it felt like it was becoming more and more uh, inflexible and they felt basically that they lacked dignity in the workplace insofar as they were being classified uh, misclassified as they would say as independent contractors rather than employees and so after that discussion, they found that they shared the same issues and they made a commitment to work together to try and engage in workplace organizing. Uh, and they wanted to initiate a campaign to try to unionize. And uh, that would mean that they would have to legally challenge their misclassification as independent contractors in order to gain the rights that employees have uh, that includes uh, the right to unionize and uh, they knew that it was going to be incredibly difficult uh, for example how do you uh, persuade uh, a majority of your co-workers to join something like a union when your workplace is the size of a metropolis and you don't know how many co-workers you have let alone who they are. Despite these challenges, uh, they committed to the project, they committed to trying to work through it and try to understand how they might engage in workplace organizing in this very peculiar workplace. Paul Gray is my guest. He is Assistant Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Canada. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So these couriers who launched the workplace organizing campaign that will become known as Foodsters United, they learned the importance early on of one-on-one -on -one organizing conversations. What are organizing conversations? Yeah, that's a crucial one. Early on, they reached out to some couriers who were part of the Industrial Workers of the World, and a few of the members of that organization provided some basic labor organizing uh, skills, a kind of workshop on how to organize your workplace. And, uh, you know, the, the Wobblies, uh, another name for the industrial workers of the world, actually had some members who were uh, working for this and other uh, app companies uh, in this context. And so all of them were kind of interested. How can you apply these traditional organizing techniques to 
some of the new peculiar features of the gig economy. And one of the things that they teach you in traditional labor organizing is that you have to always prioritize the one-on-one -on -one in-person conversation. You know, you can see why in uh, contemporary context, especially in this context, people might turn to something like social media as a way to try to reach people, especially when you think of all the barriers that these gig workers were confronting and trying to find out who their co-workers were and to, to reach all of them. And uh, early on, they experimented with this, but they found that there were significant limits to uh, engaging in that kind of outreach through social media. You might have 100 people on a particular chat group, but only five to 10 people participating. Less than half of the people actually show up to events uh, that they commit to on, on, on these apps. And so they found that uh, they were going to have to go through the slow, methodical process of identifying who all their coworkers were and trying to find them and have these one-on-one -on -one conversations. And one of the reasons why that's so important is that an organizing conversation is highly structured there is a, a right way to do it in the kind of organizing tradition. And there are you know, different acronyms, but uh, the one that I think is uh, most familiar, uh, the way in which to have this structured organizing conversation is A-E-I-O-U. That is, you agitate, educate, inoculate, organize, unionize. And these represent different steps in how to have this organizing conversation. Yeah, let's talk about this AEIOU model. So how did each component of this model, again, agitate, educate, inoculate, organize, and unionize, manifest and unfold? So the first part of the organizing conversation is agitate. And typically what they teach a, a, a new organizer is that when you're having these conversations, you should always listen much more than you speak. You've got two ears and one mouth, and uh, generally that's the right ratio of speaking to listening that an organizer should follow. You should be asking a lot of open-ended questions rather than yes-no questions. You should be asking folks about how they feel about their working conditions, uh, what some of their problems about their working conditions might be, some of the issues that they might have. And the reason it's called agitation is that, you know, as people are given space to reflect on their working conditions and to talk about them, they realize that actually there's often a lot of problems with their their workplace, that they do have a lot of issues that they care about. And uh, this helps you down the road in understanding what their main issues are and trying to get a commitment to the kind of collective activity that's often necessary to be able to address some of these issues that folks might have. The second part is education, and that generally is the idea of laying the blame, saying that the reason why these working conditions have these problems is not because of some immutable aspect of working conditions in all times and places, but because of decisions made by people who have power, uh, people who uh, could be persuaded uh, otherwise if there is some collective organizing that uh, is able to issue demands to those people who had the power to make these conditions and have the power to transform them. The uh, inoculate phase of an organizing conversation uh, is named that because it uh, shares some similarities with what we typically associate with the idea of inoculation, that is getting a small dose of something so that you can build up the antibodies so that when you're exposed to the real thing later on, it's not as harmful. So typically in an organizing conversation, uh, you will ask people that you're speaking to, you know, well, what if management says this? Or, you know, what if an unsympathetic coworker argues this? Uh, and you explore uh, how you might respond to uh, these kinds of counterarguments or criticisms so that when these folks encounter them uh, later on from management, for example, uh, there's already been a substantial amount of workshopping around them so that people know how to respond. It's not as uh, scary when they encounter it because they haven't encountered it for the first time. And one of the things that uh, these Fedora couriers really focused on is uh, they thought that Fedora would argue that if an, a union was introduced into uh, this kind of workplace, 
that it would create rigid structures, it would uh, really hem in people's uh, flexibility, it would turn the job into a standard nine to five. And this could be an effective counter argument because the reason why a lot of these folks were doing this kind of work is because they didn't want a nine to five. You know, maybe they had uh, childcare responsibilities and so they valued uh, being able to log into the app when they had the time to do so and to work for it uh, for the time that they had and the like. And so these uh, couriers would ask folks, how would you respond to uh, a criticism like that and hear what people had to say? And they might also suggest themselves that uh, actually Fedora is the one that is introducing these new, more rigid scheduling structures. Uh, they're the ones who are kind of clamping down on the flexibility that they had promised as you know part of their push to get people to join uh, this app. Uh, if we're able to uh, form a group that can represent uh, our collective interests, we can actually advocate in favor of uh, maintaining that kind of flexibility around scheduling. Uh, actually, the union is the solution to this, not the problem. And then uh, you switch to O, or organizing, and that is basically uh, trying to persuade folks that they have issues that they care about, there's someone to blame, and that these can be fixed, but only if people organize together and use the strength and numbers that they have, the leverage that can arise from that, in order to create that change. And this part of the organizing conversation often entails getting a commitment, having a, a task, whether it's attending a meeting or uh, doing something like getting co you know, a certain number of coworkers to sign a petition or something like that. You ask folks to join the organizing effort, to join the collectivity by assigning a specific task so everyone is clear uh, the level of commitment that's being asked and uh, what the concrete task is such that you know whether or not it's been uh, completed so you can assess how committed the person is to the, the collective organizing. And on that basis you turn to the last phase of the organizing conversation which is unionize and that is essentially you know trying to make the argument that the traditional and standard collective organization of workers under capitalism is the union and that we need a union to be able to uh, address all of these issues that we have in our workplace. That's the voice of Paul Gray. He teaches in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. He's editor of the volume From the Streets to the State, Changing the World by Taking Power. And we are talking about an article he wrote about organizing gig workers in Toronto, specifically the campaign put forward by Foodsters United against the app company Foodora. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Well, in order to have these all-important organizing conversations, they had to find their co-workers. They had to seek out and locate these people so they could have these conversations with them. And to that end, social mapping became very important, and it's an important part, as you write, of, of workplace organizing generally. What is social mapping? Social mapping is a long-established organizing technique where workers are asked to physically draw up maps of their workplace so that they can start to think about them strategically. So uh, on large pieces of paper, poster board, or the like, you try to draw and map out uh, your workplace and then start to identify some strategically relevant aspects of that workplace. Uh, one thing that you typically do in social mapping is you try to map out all of the lines of movement. Uh, all of the different parts of the labor process, you know, what people are doing what, how they're moving from one station or phase of production to another, who they might interact with in the process of engaging in this work. And this helps you to start to think strategically about how you might use some of these lines of movement uh, in your organizing. For example, uh, you may notice in the workplace that there are bottlenecks 
That is to say that you have uh, a lot of people in a relatively small space or you have one phase of the production process that is so connected to the others that it is you know, one of the most crucial or the most crucial parts of the production process. And uh, this kind of thinking is important because uh, it might be a way to establish what's referred to as choke points. These are parts of the production process where if you focus your efforts, you could increase uh, the disruptive capacity of your activities. Indeed, and on the question of choke points, uh, which choke points did the foodsters identify? Which locations do they see as particularly strategic in relation to their goal of, of finding co-workers, talking with them, and trying to get them to sign union cards? So basically, uh, they mapped out their workplace and they started by trying to identify key intersections where they might better focus their activities. Uh, and so one of the, the bottlenecks that they identified was uh, Spadina and Richmond. This is a, a significant intersection in downtown Toronto. It's got uh, four restaurants, one on each corner, that are popular amongst uh, the users of uh, various uh, food apps. Uh, it's got bike lanes in either direction. And uh, the traffic lights, this is important, uh, last uh, 45 seconds instead of the standard 30 seconds, which gives folks more opportunity to have a longer organizing conversation with uh, people uh, as they're biking by or they're, uh, they've come to a stop at the intersection. And so one of the things that they did is they mapped out key intersections like this, and then they set up uh, these kind of welcome tents. And any time that they noticed one of their coworkers driving towards this intersection, they tried to flag them down. Uh, and they found that they were uh, having a lot of success with this, that they were encountering uh, many more couriers than they would have otherwise because they had identified these kinds of bottlenecks and were using them as these kinds of choke points to be able to have this structured organizing conversation with all of these, these different couriers going through. Now, given that they might have only very a limited amount of time to interact with these coworkers on the street or stopped at a stoplight, what do they do in order to make further conversation possible such that they could do a lot of listening, such that they could go through uh, many of these AEIOU components with the person, with their interlocutor? So I think that they uh, developed two basic strategies. Uh, the first is what they called the stoplight conversation. This is what they called it. And it was a kind of preliminary organizing conversation that was meant to set up the more structured organizing conversation later. It was the kind of thing that was supposed to be conducted in 10 seconds or less while people were waiting at intersections. And they try to engage in as much agitation as possible. You know, they'd ask people, how's your shift going? Uh, they might say, you know, really tough shift for me. Uh, you know, not getting a lot of orders, uh, how about you? Allow this person to uh, express themselves uh, and then say, listen, uh, a few of us are getting together later on uh, to discuss the working conditions here. Uh, can I get your contact info? I'll let you know where we're meeting. That was one thing. The, the other thing was uh, the ride-along conversation. And so essentially these organizers would ask couriers if they could ride with them while they're making their deliveries. Uh, just to talk to them about their experiences and to share some experiences in the workplace. And this was a way to have uh, a longer organizing conversation. And they found actually, uh, to their surprise, that uh, much more than uh, the bike couriers, they had a lot of success in the ride-along conversations with car couriers because one of the unique issues faced by car couriers is parking tickets. You're trying to make these deliveries, you gotta get out of your car, there's not a lot of parking spots uh, in Toronto, and uh, if you have someone sitting in the passenger seat, uh, it means the car is not parked, you're not gonna get a ticket, and so actually people were welcoming these coworkers into the passenger seat to do the kind of ride-along conversation because it meant that they could make their delivery without the risk of parking tickets. One of what you call their most inspired strategies, and again, this is a group called Foodsters United in Toronto, involved foodsters ordering food from Foodora. Tell us about that. Yeah, this one I loved. Uh, I thought that this was strategically ingenious. 
what the uh, foodsters were finding is that they were having a bunch of good organizing conversations with folks in the downtown core. But uh, in the outer realms uh, where Fedora were, was doing deliveries, uh, you know, the exurbs, the suburbs, uh, especially those areas where there are more car couriers than there are bike couriers, they were having a hard time uh, reaching these folks. And they decided, okay, rather than us going to them, let's try to bring them to us. So they would go to places, say, in, in North York, and they would order food from Fedora and the courier that showed up uh, to make the delivery, they would have the organizing conversation with them. And depending on how well that organizing conversation went, uh, they would start to try to train these folks in having similar organizing conversations with some of the coworkers that they knew in that area. And eventually they mobilized a bunch of allies in the broader labor movement to do you know, what they called call-in days. And that was basically having uh, dozens, uh, sometimes hundreds of people ordering food from Fedora. And these people had been trained in having a, a, a mini preliminary organizing conversation where basically someone would show up to deliver food. These folks would hand to them a package of materials from the Foodsters United uh, Union campaign and uh, contact info so that uh, these couriers could reach out to the organizers of the campaign if they wanted to follow up with it. So I, I thought this was one of the more uh, inspired strategies that they came up with. This is Against of the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. Paul Christopher Gray, Assistant Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University in Ontario, Canada, joins me. He wrote a really interesting article about organizing gig workers in Toronto with Foodsters United. It appeared in the fall 2022 issue of the journal Labor slash Le Travail. There is much more in your article about social mapping and choke points, but I want to move on to another classic workplace organizing method, and that is social charting. What is social charting? Social charting is a traditional labor organizing technique where you literally draft up charts uh, of information about coworkers. Uh, you are trying to meet folks and uh, get an understanding of who they are and assess the relationship to their work, uh, to each other, and to your campaign uh, in the sense of are they supportive of the campaign? Are they willing to join it? Are they indifferent? Are they hostile? And so typically what a, a social chart will include is a coworker's name and then some basic information about uh, the shifts that they work, uh, where they work, the kind of work that they do. Uh, you might have some basic information uh, in terms of how to contact them, a phone number, an email, and the like. If you've had these structured organizing conversations with them, uh, you can include things like what are some of the issues, the main issues, what's their biggest issue with the workplace, the, the kind of thing that they're most concerned about. You can also uh, assess the uh, level of commitment to the campaign by charting uh, what tasks have people been asked to do and uh, to what extent have they been fulfilled. And I thought that they applied this traditional technique to their gig economy workplace in uh, some really ingenious ways. Such as? So let's take a step back and look at some of the challenges that these folks had trying to organize this workplace. They were classified as independent contractors. That means that by law, they could not unionize. So what they were going to do is they were going to legally challenge this as a misclassification, try to get it overturned, and try to win uh, the classification of the employee who has the right to form a union. That was the first thing. If they were able to uh, successfully challenge this misclassification if they were considered some form of employee that was legally allowed uh, and entitled to uh, the right to unionize, then it raised the question of who would be considered an active worker. Now in a traditional workplace, uh, let's say a factory, if you try to unionize it, it's fairly clear who is going to be in the bargaining unit. Uh, you know, the people who are uh, doing similar kinds of work on the shop floor. 
But in the gig economy, this is much less straightforward. There's a question of, okay, even if you do win the right to unionize, who is going to be considered part of a potential bargaining unit? You can think of it in these terms. Would it be everyone who had signed up for the app, uh, even if they had never worked a shift? Or would it be everyone who signed up for the app, but uh, you know had only worked one shift? Or would it be everyone who had signed up for the app, um, but worked a shift within a certain amount of time, say uh, within the year that uh, these folks tried to apply uh, to gain a union? Would it be within six months of that, one month of that? So this kind of thing would have to be determined by uh, the labor board, uh, in this case, uh, the Ontario Labor Relations Board, who would be considered uh, an active worker. One of the reasons why this is significant is uh, you have to demonstrate that the majority of people want to form a union in order to get a union. In Ontario, there's a two-step process. First, you have to get a certain percentage of the workforce that would be in the union to sign union cards demonstrating their support for forming a union. In Ontario, it's 40%. If you get that 40%, you submit the application to the labor board, they count the cards. If they've determined that you have 40% or more of the prospective workforce signing these cards, then they have a union vote. And in the union vote, it has to be 50% plus one of all of the people who would be in the prospective bargaining unit. 50% uh, plus one of them have to vote a majority, simple majority have to vote in favor of it for the union to then become uh, recognized in a mandatory way by the employer and by the government. But to get to the 40% the threshold, the, the list of overall employees, total employees, had to be figured out. And as you were saying, Foodsters United had to do some guessing because they didn't know what the Ontario Labor Relations Board would determine would be the criteria for calculating the number of, of active employees such that 40% of them had to sign union cards to get this process going. And there was something Foodora was doing that made it more difficult, probably intentionally, for the workers to, to figure out who was actually an active worker. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, a traditional issue that workers face when applying to unionize is sometimes their employer will do what's called stacking the list. So if a group of workers have applied to unionize, usually the labor board will then uh, insist on the company providing a list of all of the employees that would potentially be in the bargaining unit you know, potentially be a part of this union if it is successfully formed. But what employers sometimes do is they stack the list, which means they put names on the employee list that don't actually belong there. Names of people who would not be in the future union if it formed. So maybe they include uh, managers' names on the list, or maybe people who have already retired. And the reason why employers would do this is the more names that you add to the list, the longer the list becomes, the higher the number of people you have to get to sign union cards in order to reach that 40% threshold. And there are very few repercussions for employers uh, trying to uh, stack the list, and so uh, sometimes they do it. And it's then the responsibility of the workers who are trying to unionize to go through the list and to identify all of those who don't belong on it and uh, try to get the labor board to cross them off the list so that there's a more accurate understanding of uh, what the total number of employees uh, you know, is and what 40% actually means. That's a, a longstanding issue for workers. It is especially difficult for workers in the gig economy because of uh, how contingent this labor is how easy it is to sign up people uh, to an app and how open-ended the question of what an active worker is in this context. And so uh, these workers in Foosters United were quite wary of the possibilities of their company, of Fedora, trying to stack the list. And so one of the things that these folks introduced into their social charting 
is what they called a deactivated list. Any worker who had been deactivated from the app, you know, through their various organizing conversations and following up with folks, if they found that people hadn't worked a shift in a long time, if they planned on moving away or, you know, they were going to stop working for Fedora or if they had been deactivated, they put all of those people into a separate list that they called the deactivated list because they thought that this list would be some of the prime candidates that Fedora would attempt to uh, include on a kind of stacked list. Paul Gray joins us on Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. He teaches in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Canada. There's so much more in your article. You write about the phone banking card signing blitz launched by Foodsters United in July 2019 and about Fudora's response, its sort of counterattack by doing a massive hiring spree, raising the number of employees, making it harder to reach the 40% threshold. But to continue with the theme of organizing methods, another key method is leadership identification. How would you define it? Yeah, I'd love to talk about leadership identification, but I just wanted to point to one thing. You, you mentioned this hiring spree. And uh, this was, you know, a really interesting case of attack and counterattack between uh, the Foosters United and, and Fedora deploying various strategies. And we mentioned before the idea of choke points. Well, as soon as this hiring spree kind of emerged, uh, these workers came up with a new choke point. They uh, knew that there was this central office where all of these, these new people being hired by the app were going to have to go through their, their new worker orientation, their onboarding. And so basically what uh, the Foodsters did was they uh, decided to post up at all of the entrances and exits of uh, this, this central office of Fedora in Toronto. And anyone they saw walking in that they didn't recognize that they suspected was a new courier, they did organizing conversations right then and there. And anyone that they saw uh, walking out who they may have missed uh, on their way in, they did the organizing conversations. And they got a bunch of people to sign the cards right then and there, often before they had even gone, uh, even gone in to do their their a new worker orientation. So I think that's a pretty good example of a choke point. In terms of uh, what you asked about uh, leadership identification, this is another uh, crucial feature of uh, traditional labor organizing methods. Uh, essentially, uh, there's an idea that when you're organizing, you have to remember you're never starting from scratch that workers are already organized in a variety of ways in informal groups. There might be the people who carpool together, who smoke together, they might be part of the same migrant community and the like. And so trying to identify in your mapping and charting uh, these pre-existing informal groups is uh, a crucial feature of labor organizing. Uh, another aspect of that is trying to identify who the natural or organic leaders are within the workforce. Uh, the point of this is that it, it leads to more efficient organizing. You as an organizer can try to speak to, let's say, all 1,000 coworkers. Or if you're able to identify some of the already existing groups, you can speak to one person, train them into having a kind of organizing conversation, which they can then conduct with the people of their group and often more persuasively than you can. And that's a much more efficient way of doing it. It actually spreads the skills around. It's more democratic. And this is related to the idea of identifying leaders. Uh, there are some people who are natural or organic leaders in every context. And uh, it's rarely the people who speak first, uh, the people who speak most, or the people who speak the loudest. Uh, often uh, it's the people who, when they do speak, others listen. And actually, they're less likely to speak first, often or loudest, because they know that there are greater stakes in what they have to say, because uh, people will actually listen to them and take what they have to say seriously. Uh, and so part of leadership identification is trying to figure out what are some of the qualities of these natural or organic leaders in a workplace context. Uh, it's often the folks who are quite good at their jobs. It's often the folks who, uh, you know, if you as a worker have a question that you're really embarrassed to ask anyone else, you would ask this person. There's a level of trust there. And uh, part of 
you know, organizing is trying to identify who these leaders are, because if you can have an organizing conversation with them, you can persuade them using this structured organizing conversation to engage in organizing and unionizing, then they can often speak to their coworkers, their constituents, the people who listen to them above all, uh, you know, they can have the kind of organizing conversations uh, much better than, than you would be able to have it. And uh, this is something that uh, Foodsters United tried to introduce into their campaign. They tried to engage in this leadership identification. In the interest of time, I want to jump ahead to what happened in 2020, soon after the COVID pandemic hit. The Ontario Labor Relations Board issued rulings on the status of the Fudora couriers and on the question of whether Foodsters United had gathered enough signed union cards, whether it had met the 40% threshold. What did the Labor Board decide? Yeah, so uh, the early phases of the pandemic is a crucial period in this union campaign. Uh, the first thing that happened was uh, essentially that the Ontario Labor Relations Board ruled that uh, these workers had been misclassified, that they were not independent contractors, uh, that they were dependent contractors, which is a form of employee, which means that they had the right to unionize. So uh, now that they did have the right to unionize, they uh, were, would be allowed to uh, vote for a union, uh, those votes would be sealed. Uh, they would then have all of the cards that Foodsters United had collected to see if they met the 40% threshold. If they did meet that 40% threshold, then uh, they would open up the votes and see if the majority had voted in favor of the union. And so the union vote proceeded. Those ballots were sealed. And then there was a question of who the labor board would regard as an active worker. And so when uh, the labor board decided that anyone who had worked a shift within four months of the union application would be considered an active worker, they then counted all of the relevant cards for everyone who had worked uh, within those four months. And uh, somehow, against seemingly insurmountable odds, Foodsters United uh, reached and exceeded that 40% threshold. Uh, then they uh, opened the ballots that the Labor Board had been holding uh, from the union vote. And uh, when they counted them, they found that 88.8% of the people who voted had voted in favor of forming a union, a massive number. So uh, this was a major success for these gig workers. It showed uh, a kind of model for how uh, gig workers can apply traditional organizing techniques to their, uh, the peculiarities of the gig economy workplace. Nevertheless, uh, this success was tempered by a devastating setback. Uh, soon after the labor board had ruled that these couriers are uh, a, a form of employee that is, you know, that's allowed to form unions. Uh, Fedora uh, declared bankruptcy and withdrew uh, all of its operations uh, from Canada. Um, this was uh, essentially what occurred in these early phases of the COVID-19 pandemic. So some major victories and then a huge defeat. And it was on that basis that uh, the organizers of Foodsters United uh, decided to transition in the midst of the pandemic to gig workers united. Uh, rather than trying to organize gig workers at one or another company, they decided that they would try a kind of community unionism model where they would organize gig workers across uh, Toronto, uh, whatever their form of work and whatever companies that they were working for. And Gig Workers United exists to this day and is uh, trying to uh, organize uh, the, the efforts of gig workers in Toronto. What do you find most impressive about what Foodsters United was able to do? And what's the lesson here? What do you see as what we can take from the steps and methods and efforts that these folks 
performed and and achieved and did over a period of of many many months i think one of the things that we often hear from the platform companies themselves is that the gig economy is totally unprecedented it is something new it's the future of work and i think that actually the gig economy despite what's new about it has a lot of parallels with prior eras in the history of capitalism and to the extent that gig workers agree with this idea of the unprecedented character of of the gig economy that might mean that they they might neglect some of the uh, organizing traditions that have been crafted over centuries uh, when they engage in some of their own workplace organizing and i think that this would be a mistake i think uh, one of the things that uh, foodsters united and uh, gig workers united demonstrates is that you can apply some of these traditional organizing methods to uh, the peculiar workplace that you find in the gig economy even if your workplace is a metropolis even if you don't know how many coworkers you have when you begin let alone who those coworkers are we've spoken about some traditional organizing techniques like uh, leadership identification issue uh, identification i think one of the most impressive things that these folks did is what you could call coworker identification they used these traditional methods uh, social mapping social charting to uh, map out their workplace and i think one of the major success stories uh, of foodsters united despite this devastating setback i think one of the things that makes it a model that other gig workers could learn from is that they were able to have one-on-one in-person conversations with so many of their coworkers dispersed over so broad a a workplace that they were able to get more than 40% of those those coworkers to agree to form a union and to sign those union cards. Paul Gray, assistant professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Canada, editor of the volume From the Streets to the State. Changing the World by Taking Power, published by SUNY Press. We've been talking about an article he wrote that appeared in the journal Labor Le Travail. It's called The Same Tools Work Everywhere, Organizing Gig Workers with Foodsters United. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for your work and for writing this article and for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 